Hey there everybody, you're listening to Raven's Grove. I'm your host, Dahi, and today we're going to be diving into the world of facts with our long-running fact time series. Now this episode is kind of obvious, uh, themed fact times episode, but it's all about geek facts with no particular theme. So, because of that, I'm calling it Random Fact Times Geek Re-Edition, so I hope you enjoy it. Now before I go any further, this episode of the Raven's Grove features the following trigger warnings. Supernatural slash horror mentions... Crime mentions, weapon mentions, piracy mentions, imperialism mentions, clown mentions, murder mentions, and drug use mentions, as well as spoilers for the following franchises: the TV, and the comics and film franchise based on the character of Aquaman, the movies and, and books and upcoming TV show Percy Jackson and the Olympians, the TV show Doctor Who, the Assassin's Creed video game franchise. And the TV and miniseries and books based on the book It by Stephen King. So if any of those are in any way triggers for you, please give this episode a miss. Right, now those are out of the way, let's light this candle. So to get us underway, let's talk about one of the most underrated superheroes in mainstream DC comics, Aquaman. For many years, Aquaman has been the butt of countless jokes. He's been often called useless, all he can do is talk to fish, yada yada, uh, that kind of thing. And I'll admit, I used to think Aquaman was a lesser superhero myself. I genuinely bought into all that, that just claptrap. But that all changed for me in 2018. Because that was when I went to see the Aquaman movie starring Jason Momoa, which was released in cinemas that year. And that film changed my perspective on Aquaman. And I have to say, given, quite frankly, the, the abysmal quality of Batman v Superman and the original cinematic version of Justice League, the only DCEU films up until 2022's The Batman, which is one of my favorite comic book movies of all time, were Wonder Woman and Aquaman. Seriously, if you haven't seen any of those three films, The Batman, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman, do yourself a favor and watch them. They are amazingly good quality films. But the thing is, a lot of people still don't get just how powerful Aquaman is in the comics. And it's kind of disappointing because he's one of the most overpowered characters in the comics hands down like this is a guy well you'll find out in a minute won't you so here's the official list of powers and abilities aquaman has either seen or demonstrated in the comics so first off we have atlantean hybridized physiology like most atlanteans arthur curry Aquaman's alter ego, is an offshoot homo sapien who is biologically adapted to the deep ocean environment. For most Atlanteans, this means they can breathe underwater, endure the pressure of the deep, among other adaptations, and can only spend a very limited time out of water. However, due to either Aquaman's hybrid nature, he's got a human father, Atlantean mother, or his royal heritage, his mother was queen, he possesses a number of traits on his mother's side that the rest of the species simply do not have. For instance, he can spend an elongated time on dry land with little ill effect, and is shown to be up to 20 to 50 times stronger, faster, tougher, and more or less tireless compared to other members of the Atlantean race. Also akin to other amphibian life is his ability not only to function indefinitely and within water, but to easily withstand the crushing depths of the ocean deep, as well as the harsh environment of the sea itself. These powers make Arthur Curry, among other things, a super Atlantean as well as a superhuman. Second thing, and a subcategory of this, is superhuman durability. 
He's tough enough to resist small arms fire with minor injury. The teeth of most uh, trench dwellers break on contact with his body. He survived an RPG blowing up in his face and can survive the, in the deepest, darkest bowels of the ocean, suffering no discomfort. He even lived through falling back to Earth after being launched to object by Mera, uh, coming back down hard on top of a sea monster's head without any visible injury. He can also spend prolonged times, uh, periods of time in the void of space without any discomfort, although he still needs to breathe. He can also survive flash channeling the speed force of an entire planet through his body without injury. That last one is especially impressive for me because the flash channeling the speed force is a big deal. I mean, half the problem with the DC Universe and comics is that the Flash will continually go back in time and rewrite history, which changes the timeline. That's how they reboot the franchises. And so, it's that is legit impressive. A third subcategory is energy and heat resistance. Arthur Curry has taken and lived through multiple energy blasts in the past, which include being fresh fl flash frozen by the dead king's ice magic. His ultimate resilience was tested when he dipped into an open lava bed beneath the sea and emerged unscathed. He's got superhuman stamina. He has superhuman senses as well. Arthur Curry's senses are several times more acute than human capacity. He once even heard a policeman's siren from several miles away. His senses are similarly enhanced beyond the regular human norm. He can see perfectly fine in the pitch black abyss of an oceanic trench, as well as hear things from a good distance away even while deep below the sea line. He's got, obviously, this classifies as superhuman hearing and superhuman vision, but it remains to be seen whether or not his other senses are as good as that. Fourth subcategory is superhuman reflexes. His reflexes are heightened to levels far beyond that of a regular human. Superhuman speed, he's phenomenally fast, whether it be running or swimming. While in the ocean, he was out, able to outrace a spy plane owned by the villain The Operative, which can ta travel at up to speeds of Mach 5. That's five times the speed of sound. He has also been able to beat the Flash to a draw in an underwater race. That is legit impressive. If you have any idea of how fast the Flash War is, that is genuinely impressive. Superhuman Strength. Aquaman's super Atlantean size enables him to lift insurmountable amounts of weight. For instance, towing around multiple fishing boats while tsunamis and tidal waves were crashing down around them. He is capable of knocking the likes of Superman and Wonder Woman away dozens of feet away with singular blows. He lifted a 160,000 ton sea liner barehanded and lifting and throwing a sunken cargo ship. Some of his greatest feats might include pushing a tectonic plate over the entrance to the trenches lair and matching the legendary Hercules blow for blow. Now, by the way, that I want to clarify something here. Hercules is actually a legit character in DC Comics. So that's not Aquaman going and jumping into Greek myth. That is actually a legit character in DC Comics based on the legendary superhero. Incidentally, Hercules is also a character in Marvel Comics, just to make it even more confusing. Uh, another one of Aquaman's powers is Super Leaping. He can make use of his powerful bodily muscles to launch himself out of the water, either jumping on or off land, or propelling himself out of open water like a missile. Accelerated Healing. He has the ability to recover from wounds far quicker than a human. Now, I actually don't know the context of this next one, but apparently it's quite impressive. Uh, the, it took him a matter of days to recover from his fight with the villain known as the Shaggy Man. Again, I don't know the context of that, so I don't know if it's that impressive or not, but from what I'm reading, it seems to be. 
Latent magic. He has the underlying potentiality to cast and manipulate the arcane. Normally, he needs an item of power through which he can channel these abilities, like an imperial polearm of national design, such as trident. An effective uh, which is usually accompanied by a bright yellow or golden glow in his eyes, but at times, Aquaman has been able to use these talents without the use of his ceremonial trident, indicating that this power is more innate than reliant on a channeling apparatus. He's also more resilient against arcane forces thanks to his dormant magical capabilities, so he's a lot harder to enchant. Life Force Connection Aquaman has access to one of the seven hidden forces of reality related to the life-giving powers of the oceans themselves. This gives him access to a great many undisclosed abilities, the likes of which he has yet to access on his own. Through the Life Force, he's connected to all living beings eh, as he is to the life-giving waters from which they sprung, enabling the established supernatural link to any and all sentient being entities throughout the cosmos and back towards Earth. Now, this is probably his most famous ability, the Marine Telepathy. While popular belief is often debated about Aquaman talking to fish or aquatic fauna, he can he in the comics he can hear the voice of the sea and can communicate with his many denizens living along it within it along the lines of those who spring with it. it being capable of sending out worldwide telepathic broadcasts with ease and when necessary across space and time beyond mere oceanic psychic ability, this is something that he's been able to do since he was very young. He was able to assume control of the of the mind of the great sea leviathan Topo, but with extreme levels of difficulty, as the stress of such an act left him comatose for six months. It seems that Aquaman has developed better control over his power, as commanding Topo to sunder a dreadnought from Thule wasn't as difficult as it used to be in the comics, which is pretty impressive. Like if you've seen the Aquaman movie, major spoilers here, but towards the end, there is a literal kaiju type creature that Aquaman is able to command the loyalty of. And major spoilers here, but that you're not gonna believe this. That character is actually played by Julie Andrews. Yes, Mary Poppins herself voice a character. In fact she passed up the role to reprise the role in Mary Poppins 2 to be an Aquaman for that role because she thought it was so awesome. That is I mean, I, I love that film, and it's just incredible. So, yeah. Another one of Aquaman's powers is transformation. And through his use of the life force, he can restore fallen, go restore fallen gods to their divine selves once again, even revitalizing them after they've been subsumed into the primordial goddess Mother Salt. He could also use his powers to keep a divine beast from overcoming Kaylee's body and mind, enabling her to assume its power without losing herself to it. Now, granted, I don't know who Kaylee is, but that is pretty impressive, I will admit. So, now we're getting into abilities. He's got occultism, which we've already discussed. Hand-to-hand combat, advanced. Aquaman has beaten his arch nemesis Black Manta in one-on-one -on -one combat. It's also been revealed Aquaman has trained with Wonder Woman and he's admitted he has trained with Batman. Now, if you know anything about the comics, Batman and Wonder Woman are considered to be the two greatest hand-to-hand -hand combatants in the Justice League. And apparently Aquaman has trained with them. That is... Wow. Just wow. Uh, politics. As a former king, he's an adept politician. He's a master swimmer. He's an expert diplomat. He has succeeded in stopping at least two wars between Atlantis and the surface. He's an expert swordsman and weapon master, in which it has a subcategory saying he's highly proficient in the use of multi-pronged pole arms such as tridents. He's an expert leader, with because let's face it, he was a he was a successful ruler of up to seventy percent of the world at a time. So, granted, he has to be a good leader for that. Expert fisherman, expert driver, and multilingual. He can apparently speak some Polynesian, which is 
pretty cool given that um, Jason Momoa actually played him in the movie and Momoa is very very proud of the fact he's uh, Hawaiian so fact number two also about Anakoic Superhuman but this one isn't necessarily a comic book hero granted his adventures have been transformed into comic books but he didn't actually start out that way now I'm going to go out on a limb here folks and assume that at least some of you listening to this episode have at least heard of Rick Riordan's books and especially the Percy Jackson series if you haven't then I would strongly recommend that you give them a try. As, to be honest, they're some of my favorite books on the planet. They are amazingly well written. And with the Percy Jackson TV show coming to Disney Plus in 2024, you might want to go into reading or listening to them as soon as you can. Word of advice, avoid the movies like nothing else. They are terrible adaptations. Rick Ryden, the author of the books, has publicly condemned them for not following the storyline of the books. They are atrociously bad. But from all accounts, the Disney Plus TV show is actually doing a pretty good job. So I guess we'll wait and see. Now, for those of you who just want the quick notes version, the Percy Jackson books are urban fantasy books written for young adults. Though realistically, anyone can read them. Though I wouldn't recommend reading them if you're younger than about ten. And the basic concept is: What if the ancient Greek gods were alive and active in the modern day? Now, this is where the spoilers come in. The hero of the books, Perseus Percy Jackson, is a demigod and a son of the Greek god Poseidon, god of the ocean and storms. This gets Percy and his other demigod friends into all kinds of hair-raising adventures. And I do mean that, but they're good in a bad way. They, the books can be terrifying, they will make you scream, they will make you cry, but they are honestly some of the best books I've ever read. They were a major part of my childhood, and I cannot recommend them highly enough especially considering the whole, um, shall we say, controversy with J.K. Rowling and her anti-transphobic, her very transphobic stance at the moment and all the uh, controversy about her. Rick Ryden is what J.K. Rowling wishes she could be. So I would highly recommend giving them a read. He is an amazing person and the Percy Jackson books are incredible. And I'm I'm also trying to uh, deliberately avoid telling you too much about the books because I want you to go read them for yourselves because they are, like I keep saying, they're amazingly well done. They are honestly some of my favorite books. But what many people may not know is that there's actually a very clear family link between Percy Jackson and the Disney princess Ariel, aka the main character of The Little Mermaid. See, Ariel's dad, King Triton, right? In Greek mythology, Triton is the eldest son of Poseidon, making Percy Jackson Ariel's uncle, albeit in a different franchise. And technically speaking, the Percy Jackson series is actually owned by Disney. So, yeah, kind of funny, really. The fact number three is also about another family link, but this time it's linking the families of two Time Lords. Now, I'm going to be completely clear for you, folks. Compared to other franchises, I am not a huge Doctor Who fan. I actually haven't watched an episode on TV or streaming deliberately since Matt Smith's first season as the 11th Doctor ended. And that's not necessarily by choice. I just, after Matt Smith's first season ended, I kind of lost interest and I've, I haven't really got back into it. I'm not as huge a fan of it as I am other things. You see, my first Doctor was the 10th Doctor, David Tennant. I've since seen some of the earlier ones, the ones before the 2005 reboot, and I have a I love Tom Baker's Doctor Who, but for me, David Tennant will always be my Doctor. But what most people do not know is that there's actually a direct family link between his Doctor and one of the other more famous iterations of the Doctor. You see, David Tennant is married to Georgie Tennant, named Moffat. They apparently met during the filming of Doctor Who Season 4 in, in the episode The Doctor's Daughter, which incidentally was the first ever episode I saw. They, um, they started dating, 
and have been married actually with happily married with multiple kids since 2011. Now this is where the family link comes in. See, Georgia Moffat's Georgia Tan's dad is Peter Moffat. That the name doesn't ring any bells. How about Peter Davidson, aka the actor who brought the fifth incarnation of the Doctor to life in the 1980s? That's right, David Tennant's father-in-law is a fellow version of the Doctor. And considering that David Tennant is quite possibly the biggest Doctor Who fan on the planet, that is a really, really awesome fact. Now, fact number four is to do with one of my favourite video game franchises, and it's how one iconic character the entries of this franchise got a signature accent. Now, as many of you who are long-time listeners to this podcast may be aware, I'm a massive Assassin's Creed fan. As of this recording, in July of 2023, I have played the PlayStation version of every single major Assassin's Creed game in the franchise, with the exception of Assassin's Creed Chronicles. As for the record, I just want to make it clear, I had no intention of ever playing AC Mirage, but the upcoming one, but that's a story for another time. Now, you ask any Assassin's Creed fan worth their salt what their favorite games in the franchise are, and I'd be willing to bet nearly anything that you're going to get some variant of blah 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 and Black Flag. Like, there's always going to be another one, but Black Flag is just ubiquitous as a favorite. And in my opinion, this is a perfectly valid response as no, uh, with no matter what version of Assassin's Creed you first fell in love with, for me, it was AC2 and Brotherhood, uh, Black Flag is, it's got a very special place in many gamers' heart. You see, after the, quite frankly, missed opportunities of AC Revelations and the, well, to put it bluntly, the junkiest heck combat system and hunting system in AC3, Black Flag, which his full name is Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag, was a welcome breath of fresh air. The combat system had been reworked, the storyline was compelling, the soundtrack was absolutely unbelievable. Seriously, look up the soundtrack, it's amazing. And the acting in it was absolutely superb. For those of you who haven't played it, Black Flag takes place during the Caribbean, during the Golden Age of Piracy, and you get to meet figures like Calico Jack Rackham, Blackbeard, Charles Vanes, Woods Rogers, some of the big names in that era. And follows the story of Edward Kenway, a Welsh pirate who becomes embroiled in this millennia-spanning struggle between the Assassins and the Templars. Edward Kenway, in my opinion, was a welcome change from the relatively underwhelming character of Connor, the protagonist of AC3, who is also, incidentally in the storyline, Edward's grandson. And Edward was a hell of a lot to play as a protagonist. Uh, but the what many people do not know is that the actor who played him, Matt Ryan, influenced the character's design in a big way. See, the character of Edward Kenway was initially written to be from Bristol in the west coast of England. See, Matt Ryan, though, he's from Swansea in Wales. And according to the story, after recording a take in the recording booth as in area-appropriate English accent, he responded to the instructions given to him, like saying, hey, can you do another take? He responded in his natural Welsh accent. This apparently made the audio editors take note, because they didn't know he was actually Welsh. They asked him to try recording again, but in his normal Welsh accent. Ryan did so, and the audio editors were so in love with the new take on Kenway that they asked the entire development team to rewrite Kenway's backstory to originally be from Swansea and move to Bristol in his late teens, which they did. This is actually one of the only times our voice actors and changes that I know of in video games have fundamentally changed the backstory of a character. And thanks to this, Edward Kenway has got a very strong South Welsh accent in the game, and to be honest, 
it's one of the best things that Code done for the character, as it really lends a fair bit of rebellious fire to Cameron's motivation to fight against oppressive governments like the British Empire, especially considering how badly the Welsh people and Welsh culture suffered at the hands of the British. That is a big deal. Now, Kenway is not the only Welsh, uh, not the only character in the Assassin's Creed franchise to have a Welsh voice actor playing him. The character of Jacob Fry had a Welsh voice actor in, in AC Syndicate, but given that that character is British, they actually tried to have a genuine British accent go through. But that's beside the point. Now, our final fact for today is actually about the inspiration for one of, behind one of fiction's most terrifying monsters. I'm going to assume that most of you listening to this have at least heard of Stephen King, and especially of his demonic villain Pennywise, the villain of the book, TV, miniseries, and film franchise, It. But what many people may not know is that according to an old story I heard once, it may have actually been the Ron McDonald's mascot, uh, the McDonald's mascot Ron McDonald, who served as the, inf- the inspiration behind Pennywise. The story goes that Stephen King was flying from Maine to Chicago on a late night flight sometime in the mid-1980s. Mr. King, who at the time was a heavy cocaine user, was seated next to a man in full Ronald McDonald makeup who apparently was traveling to a Ronald McDonald convention in Chicago. The flight was unusually rough due to a storm, and Mr. King, high as a kite on cocaine, had to endure the entire flight with his fellow passenger practicing a clown laugh all the way to Chicago. Thus, the image of Pennywise, the child-eating, shape-shifting, demonic clown, took form. And to be honest, I have not seen the It movies, I have no intention of seeing them, but I am aware of the impact that it had on the cultural psyche. In fact, the whole thing about It coming out in like 2016 and the whole killer clown pandemic that happened at the time, that actually caused Ronald McDonald as an icon in McDonald's. They they publicly phased it out very quietly during that whole period because they didn't want it to associate. So, kind of ironic, really. Anyway, that's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening to the Ravens Grove. I've been Dahi. You've been awesome. I'll talk to you next episode. See ya.